As a nation reels in the aftermath of the synagogue shooting in Pittsburgh, congregants gather in Sutherland Springs to reflect on what happened there a year earlier. The story on The Standard. Texas Standard is a production of KUT Austin, KERA North Texas, Houston Public Media, and Texas Public Radio in San Antonio. With support from Rand Group, software delivered as promised. No surprises. I'm David Brown. As Texans continue to set records at the polls, political experts keep talking about the so-called sleeping giant. But a case can be made. There's a better metaphor for the power of the Hispanic vote in Texas. We'll hear all about that. Plus, the Army Corps of Engineers in the Texas General Land Office pushing a massive multi-billion dollar plan to put a wall between part of the Texas Gulf Coast and the next major storm. All that and a whole lot more coming up today on the Texas Standard. No matter where you are, picture costume yet? Yes, it's Texas Standard Time on this 29th day of October. I'm David Brown. We're so glad you're spending a bit of your Monday with us. Here in the Texas capital city, a lot of folks finally stowing away their pots. Once again, after a week-long boil water notice finally lifted, Officials asking Austinites to go easy on their water use, however, many others still boiling mad over the inconvenience and why it happened. A city council members called for an investigation. Water officials blamed the emergency on silt and debris from recent flooding. We'll keep you posted. T-minus five, including today, five days left for early voting across the Lone Star State. If you haven't ventured out yet, now might be the time. Experts say it's in this last week that they expect to see an increased number of younger voters show up at the early voting stations. Speaking of voting, Brazilians went to the polls this weekend, picking for their new president, a man described as the Trump of the tropics. Jair Bolsonaro has spoken warmly of the old dictatorship, among other things, and now many wonder if this political shift to the right will signal changes coming for the rest of Latin America. But that news, huge as it was, was overshadowed in the States by another mass shooting, this time in Pittsburgh at a synagogue. Eleven people were killed in what's been described as the deadliest attack against the Jewish community in U.S. history. Some have wondered if it's a new tipping point of some sort, but you may remember what we were going through here in Texas almost a year ago. It was on November 5, 2017, that more than two dozen people were killed and another 20 were injured in a shooting at the First Baptist Church in the tiny town of Sutherland Springs, southeast of San Antonio. People in Sutherland Springs have no formal plans to mark the occasion, but over the weekend, they came together nonetheless for an event they've been holding for 30 years now, the annual Old Town Day Festival. It was hoped it might signal a return to the way things were somehow. Texas Public Radio's Joy Palacios was there. A small parade makes its way through the streets of Sutherland Springs. The route includes a pass by a First Baptist Church. There are floats, trucks, emergency vehicles, bagpipes, and motorcycles. One float, with the town's name, carries several children, including two young survivors of the shooting. Old Town Day is a celebration of Sutherland Springs' history. There's about 300 people here, and it has all the features of a small town festival. There's a brass band, a cakewalk, homemade items like jams, pickled peppers and wreaths, and barbecue plates and chalupas are for sale. Teresa Smith is president of the Sutherland Springs Community Association. She says heritage and tradition should be upheld even after the tragedy on November 5th. It brings unity to everybody to know that a small community like this 
can't still get together and enjoy a simple day of just really fellowship. Good morning, everybody. As Old Town Day was starting, news broke about the shooting at the Tree of Life Synagogue in Pittsburgh. First Baptist Church pastor Frank Pomeroy led a prayer for the victims. I, I do lift up this tragedy that's happened in uh, Pittsburgh this morning, God. I lift them up to you as we are enjoying this beautiful here, day here today. They are going through a tragedy there. God, may you let everyone there know that you are still God. As you are God here, you are God there. Pastor Frank and his wife Sherry, who were not in First Baptist the day of the shooting, lost their 14-year-old daughter, Annabelle. Sherry Pomeroy says there are good days and bad days. These triggers these last couple of weeks have been really, really hard. But I, I have been doing better up until now. And you happen to catch me on a bad day. Yeah, it was, it was pretty rough at the parade, one of Annabelle's favorites. Uh, last week was her birthday. And last week was the last, was a year ago that I saw her. Frank Pomeroy says it's the community and faith in God that keeps them, the survivors, and other family members going. We're still reaching on to one another. There's still a lot of leaning on one another. There are those who many are still getting counseling and therapy, but yet come back to the open arms of neighbors and people and friends here at the church. He says he hopes people in Pittsburgh will support and protect the survivors and family of victims in the synagogue shooting. I know what they're going to go through. I know the media things are going to go through. I know these godforsaken truthers that are going to come and give them such an incredibly horrible, hard time. Um, I, I wouldn't wish that on anybody. The Pomeroy's say that Sutherland Springs will be praying for Pittsburgh. Reporting for the Texas Standard, I'm Joy Palacios in Sutherland Springs. During each election cycle, many of the old political cliches come out. But here in Texas, few are as familiar as this one. When it comes to voting, experts refer to our community as America's sleeping giant. Potential Hispanic voters have been a sleeping giant in Texas. There has been a sleeping giant in America that has been dormant for far too long. But things are about to change. You picked up on it, right? The sleeping giant. The giant part refers to the growing number of Latinos in Texas and the U.S. The sleeping part, well, that's supposed to refer to their potential to shake things up, if only they would actually turn out at the polls. We've been hearing about the sleeping giant since at least the 1990s. That's quite a long time ago in political and demographic terms, which got the Texas Standard's own Joy Diaz wondering if it still applies or if it's not time for something new. What comes to mind when you hear the word giant? Giant itself has the connotation of size and power, great power. As a linguist for UT Arlington, Laurel Stevan's specialty is words. So if giant equals size and power, what does the sleeping add? Sleeping really is uh, often a peaceful thing, um, but often a, just a, a neutral or um, unknown state, right? Right. But the words together have sort of a scary connotation. Guess what we found, Tenderheart? Giant. Yeah, a sleeping giant. 
He's real grumpy. Is that how political analysts see Latino voters? UT Austin's political scientist, Victoria DiFrancesco Soto. The, the, the sleeping giant, I think, is the incorrect metaphor. Well, why is this the wrong metaphor? Because we've come to see that given um, the socioeconomic background of Latinos, institutional structures, there's not going to be a giant awakening. It's about moving the ball forward in bursts. Basically, as with any voting block, change is incremental. One thing that hasn't changed is the giant part. Lloyd Potter is Texas State demographer. When I was a kid growing up in the Houston area, there were Latinos around, um, not quite as many as there are today, but I don't recall seeing any, like, advertising on billboards or stores that were really catering to Latinos. Today, if you were to line up 10 Texans, for instance, four of them would be Latinos. Now, it's like it's pretty hard to go almost any place in Texas without seeing the um, acknowledgement of the presence of Latinos as an economic force. But what about the presence of Latinos as a voting force? That part is not there yet. Why? Well, one reason is because many Latinos are babies. Okay, not literally babies, but too young to vote. In Texas, more than half, 52% of all Latinos cannot vote. Some are unauthorized, but a huge number are simply too young right now. Potter says that number is growing. 518 births per day to Latinos. The non-Hispanic white population, 376 babies per day. The demographic story of Texas, as Paul Taylor, author of The Next America, puts it, is a drama in slow motion. Discard the sleeping giant metaphor. Latinos in Texas are a baby giant. Or better yet, a giant baby. Political scientist DeFrancesco Soto says it fits. A baby is a being with so much innate potential that has to be fostered and nurtured so that they then can crawl, walk, and run. A successful upbringing usually requires love, access to health care, and to a good education. Given those, demographer Lloyd Potter adds, Then that child will grow up to love its parents <laughs> if it's taken care of well. And will take care of their parents when they get older. And who are the parents? In this case, an aging white population, Latino babies could be their elders' best hope for a secure retirement because they'll be the ones paying for the future of older Texans. In Austin, I'm Joy Diaz for the Texas Standard. That story is part of our Texas Decides project examining issues leading up to the midterms. You can find more of these stories along with our voter guide at texasstandard.org. Light up that mic in for Wells Dunbar, Michael Marks, monitoring social media on this Monday. How's that for alliteration? Yeah, it's uh, it, it's not bad, David. It's Michael not bad. Marks, monitoring media. All Monday. sorts, all sorts of M's. Wish I had some some better uh, news to come with. Unfortunately, we've got some reaction 
to the tragic reporting we heard at the top of the yeah, show, David. Right, of course. Uh, some parallels between Saturday's shooting at the Tree of Life Synagogue in Pittsburgh and the shooting at the First Baptist Church in Sutherland Springs a year ago. Mm-hmm. This from Linda Hill in Dallas. Uh, from the slaying of nine black parishioners at the, <clears throat> excuse me, at the Emanuel AME Church in Charleston, South Carolina in 2015, to the massacre, massacre of 26 people at the First Baptist Church of Sutherland Springs to today, Houses of worship are prominent targets of that violence. Many messages like this one from Esteban Salazar and Brian, who tweets, My heart goes out to the families of the victims of the horrific shooting that occurred yesterday. You are not alone during this time of mourning. Also some news coming down this morning. The shooter at the Pittsburgh synagogue posted many anti-Semitic messages to a social media site called Gab. Right. Similar to Twitter, calls itself the free speech social network, had become a haven for extremists like white nationalists, neo-Nazis. As of this morning, though, Gab is no longer online. Some web hosting services have declined its business. Now when you go to Gab.com, you find only a message from the platform CEO explaining that it will be temporarily inaccessible, but that, quote, Gab isn't going anywhere. We'll have more on that later in the show. We'd love to know what you think about this story or anything else that's making news in your part of Texas. Tweet us right now at Texas Standard. Michael Marks, back in 35. Support for Texas Standard comes from Texas Oncology, with a reminder that October is Breast Cancer Awareness Month. To aid early detection, all women over the age of 40 should undergo routine screening, like yearly mammograms. More at TexasOncology.com. It's the Texas Standard on this Monday. I'm David Brown. As a caravan of Central Americans makes its way to the U.S. border, San Antonio is already seeing a sudden surge in the number of asylum seekers recently released by U.S. immigration authorities. And as Texas Public Radio's David Martin Davies reports, the arrival of the high number of immigrants is already testing the limits of local nonprofits to provide assistance. It's 3 a.m. and Betalina is shivering at the San Antonio Greyhound bus station. She and her son were released just hours ago from a Border Patrol holding facility in McAllen and then sent to San Antonio. The Honduran citizens said as cold as it is in the bus station, it was much colder at the Yeleda, which is what they called the icebox holding cells she sat in for the last five days, separated from her son. Petalina said he was kept in an area called the dog kennel and she could hear him crying for hours. Now reunited and released, they are making their way to Los Angeles to join a family member. Betalina is one of an estimated several thousand who are suddenly being released by U.S. immigration. Here at the bus station, we're having a large amount of families released from the family detention center, probably double what we usually see here. That's Sister Denise LaRock with the Interfaith Welcome Coalition. On Saturday morning, she's preparing backpacks, meals, and medicine for those released from immigration detention. The detention centers and the holding centers at the border just get so full. It's just like releasing that valve, letting people go forward with their ankle monitors and all that kind of stuff. Immigration and Customs Enforcement released a statement saying the release began on October 23rd due to the limits in their authority. The statement reads in part, After decades of inaction by Congress, the government remains severely constrained in its ability to detain and promptly remove families with no legal basis to remain in the U.S., As a result, family units continue to cross the border at high volumes and are likely to continue to do so as they face no consequences for their actions. Some critics of ICE question the timing. They wonder if the release is somehow connected to the midterm elections 
where immigration is a central issue. However, LaRocque says she avoids putting a political spin on events. Still, she's mystified. Um, it doesn't sound like they're going to the Pereira, what the families call the dog kennel. So is that changing? Are they ending using that now that it's got publicity? Or is it, or is it just you know the need for the moment because they're trying to clear out the holding places at the border to prepare for the caravan? So it, there's just a lot of questions. Then two buses pull up, one right after the other both from immigration detention centers, more buses are expected. Clipboards in hand, LaRock and her fellow volunteers go to work. It's a kind of triage. They assess the needs of each person. Where are they trying to go? Which bus do they need to be on? Do they need help with a phone call, a change of clothes, something to eat? Some need help with their uncertain immigration status. Everybody I've talked to so far is seeking asylum and they have notices to appear in front of an immigration judge um, in the near future. Nate Roeder is a post-release manager with the nonprofit Refugees and Immigration Center for Education and Legal Services, RIESIS. He sits on a bench near the cafeteria and talks with a line of refugees with a file box of documents at the ready. We have a little Know Your Rights chat that we do. We also are collecting information on where people are going and trying to provide legal referrals with our partners around the country. Roeder points out that these people are not in the country illegally. They are using the established asylum process, which is part of the legal system. He said there are long waits to have an asylum case heard, and along the way there are check-ins with ICE and a complicated legal process. But for now, the challenge is to get the refugees on their feet and on the right bus as they seek their place in America. In San Antonio, David Martin Davies for the Texas Standard. Support for coverage of business on Texas Standard comes from Texas Mutual Insurance Company, a workers' comp provider ensuring compassionate care for injuries of every size at businesses big and small. Learn more at WorkSafeTexas.com. And you're listening to the Texas Standard. Texas's coast is home to one in every four Texans, and 30% of the American oil refining sector resides there. That's what Land Commissioner George P. Bush reminded reporters late last week as he and the U.S. Army Corps of Engineers announced they'd be pushing a sweeping new plan to protect Houston and the Gulf Coast from hurricane storm surges. It's a multi-billion dollar project, the likes of which has never been undertaken on such a massive scale. Joining us now is Kia Collier. She is energy and environment reporter for the Texas Tribune. Kia, welcome. Thanks for having me. Describe this project now. Uh, as I understand it, it's going to be sort of focused uh, on the area around Galveston. Is that right? Yeah, they're pitching it as a coastwide thing, but the bulk of the kind of infrastructure would be this massive levee system down Galveston Island and uh, the peninsula to its north uh, boulevard. The purpose of it is to block hurricane storm surge. Um, there would be a gate in between the two um, barrier islands meant to block hurricane storm surge from going up uh, the Houston Strip Channel into the port of Houston. There are dozens of refineries and chemical plants that, that line that waterway, uh -huh. um, and they produce uh, you know, a vast amount of uh, the nation's you know, gasoline and uh, chemicals that are used to make plastic. Sure, and of course the danger is that if you had uh, a Hurricane Ike that uh, did not uh, um, veer a little bit off course as it, as it ultimately did, you could end up with one of the greatest uh, environmental disasters in U.S. history. That's what they're trying to, to protect against, is that right? 
That's right. Yeah. So Hurricane Ike was still a really bad hurricane. But after that, scientists at Rice University and Texas A&M Galveston did really extensive storm modeling that showed that if Ike hadn't shifted and it had hit at the western end of Galveston Island, a massive storm surge would have gone um, into the port of Houston. And there are thousands of storage tanks that hold, you know, crude oil and other chemicals mm-hmm. that um, in the area and those potentially would have been dislodged. Um, and that's the the source of the um, kind of greatest environmental disaster in, in U.S. history. Right. Comment. So, so, we, so we got lucky in a sense. But now we're talking about a series of seawalls and floodgates. And as I understand it, the price tag is $31 billion. Um, how long will it take to put this in place and who's going to pay for this? <laughs> yeah, it's a huge price tag. Um, a little more than half of that would make up the Houston area, you know, levee system. The rest of it would be beach renourishment and, you know, dune restoration further south that, you know, is a more natural solution to blocking storm surge. Uh, when the project will, you know, get going is really anyone's guess. Uh, once this uh, U.S. Army Corps of Engineers study is complete, it's kind of, you know, falls in line for funding in Congress. And there's a long, long line <laughs> of these projects across the country for um, for funding. So it's it's kind of a question of when Congress will fund it. Um, a lot of people are pretty skeptical that that would be anytime soon, but uh, people like Commissioner Bush are really hoping that um, they can, you know, sell Congress on the idea of this is a national security issue. But, we, but there's also some controversy too, especially among locals. There is a coalition of local environmental groups, statewide environmental groups are very concerned about the environmental impact such a massive project would have on an ecologically sensitive area. Um, And then there's property owners um, who worry about the seizure of land on Galveston Island and and other places. Um, It's obviously, you know, it's a barrier island. There isn't a lot of land. So it's a question of what would this look like? Um, Would it be this massive, you know, earthen mound down Galveston Island? Would beachfront properties be left on the coastal side of it? So there's just a ton of questions to figure out um, before this project would ever come to fruition. In other words, watch this space, folks. Kia certainly is. She reports on energy and the environment for the Texas Tribune, texastribune.org. Kia, thanks so much for your time. Thanks so much for having me. Support for Texas Standard comes from Rand Group, providing NetSuite ERP solutions built in the cloud. More at softwareaspromised.com. From the Texas Standard Newsroom, I'm Becky Fogel with a roundup of news from across the state. Central Texas officials have agreed to reopen an early voting site on a San Marcos college campus after voting rights advocates threatened a lawsuit. Hayes County commissioners voted Friday to reopen the polling site at Texas State University. It was operating during the first three days of the early voting period, which began last Monday, October 22nd. After the polling location closed down Wednesday, the Texas Civil Rights Project sent a demand letter to Hayes County commissioners on behalf of Move Texas and the League of Women Voters. Move Texas Executive Director Drew Galloway says they were surprised the commissioners agreed to their requests. Not only did we get the early voting uh, site extension that we asked for uh, at Texas State, they also added two other polling places for early voting 
in the county. And then they also added an election day polling place on Texas State as well. The polling location on campus will reopen this Thursday, November 1st due to a five-day notice requirement. In the meantime, a shuttle is being provided for students to vote at other sites in the county. Throughout Texas, early voting runs through this Friday, November 2nd. Election day for the midterms is Tuesday, November 6th. The family of a 26-year-old black man who was shot and killed in his own apartment by a white former Dallas police officer has filed a federal lawsuit. The lawsuit filed Friday says Amber Geiger used excessive force when she gunned down Botham Jean, a St. Lucia native, in early September. Geiger claims she mistook his apartment for her own and thought she'd encountered an intruder. Geiger and the city of Dallas are named as defendants in the suit. The lawsuit contends the Dallas Police Department did not adequately train Geiger, who had ended her shift prior to the shooting. Attorney Lee Merritt represents the Jean family. He spoke with KERA last week before the lawsuit was filed and says Jean's family wants to see systemic change. And so to see his life cut so short, the family is thinking much, much more should come from this than, you know, a, a settlement at some day or uh, some sort of financial compensation. And, and what something more looks like policy changes in the way that officers are trained, uh, not only in the city of Dallas, but throughout the country. Attorneys for the city of Dallas and Geiger have declined to comment on the lawsuit. San Antonio Spurs coach Greg Popovich reached a career milestone this weekend. It came after DeMar DeRozan scored 30 points to help the Spurs beat the Los Angeles Lakers Saturday. In the paint. Oh, oh mama, what a move. With the Spurs 110-106 win over L.A., Popovich became the only NBA coach ever to reach 1,200 regular season career wins with a single team. That's look at news from across the state. I'm Becky Fogel for the Texas Standard. Support for these Texas Standard headlines comes from the Texas Secretary of State, providing voters details on required identification for voting in person at the polls. More at votetexas.gov or 800-252-VOTE. 33 minutes past the hour, Texas Standard Time. I'm David Brown. Great to have you with us. With last year's Harvey still an open sore for many and now much of the state saturated in water, here's a headline that caught our attention, courtesy of the student newspaper at Texas A&M, The Battalion. That headline, Texas seeing fewer severe weather events, to which our reaction was, uh, uh, really? The person making the assessment, someone who knows a thing or two about this subject, John Nielsen Gammon. He is Regents Professor of Atmospheric Sciences at Texas A&M, and he is also the longtime state climatologist. Professor Nielsen Gammon, welcome to Texas Standard. Yeah, thank you. Glad to be here. I think this is somewhat counterintuitive, or a lot of our listeners may sort of wonder, could this be real, that the number of severe weather uh, uh, situations related to tornadoes and hurricanes has actually been declining? How, how so? Well, this year has been, at least for, for uh, tornadoes, uh, a very good year for Texas. We've had very few of them. Uh, you know, normally our severe weather season is primarily April, May, and into June. And it just I think it just so happened that during this particular year, we, we did not get the, the right kind of weather systems that allow that to happen. Uh, there were decent number of tornadoes um, farther north and farther east. Um, even, believe it or not, Wyoming has had more tornadoes than Texas has, wow. um, which we don't mind particularly. But I, I think this is really just a probably a, a one-off thing. We don't really know about long-term trends in tornadoes because we haven't really been systematically looking for tornadoes until like around the 
1995 or so, and storm chasing got big. So we only have 20 years worth of records right, to really look right. at trends. Well, now I want to turn our attention to hurricanes because, of course, we had uh, uh, quite a hurricane last year. Uh, what have we been seeing uh, so far this year? Yeah, this, this year has come out uh, pretty close to normal. Normally, normally you have about 13 named storms in the Atlantic Ocean Basin, and uh, that gets us to the letter M. And uh, this year's M storm uh, came on shore in Florida and did tremendous amount of damage. Uh, it's only, it only takes one storm to make a bad hurricane season for the United States because of the potential for damage from that storm. Now, let me let me ask you something about that, because, of course, we've been seeing a lot of rain across the Lone Star State over the past, uh, certainly, several weeks. And a lot of uh, a lot of meteorologists are predicting another wet November. So do you think that these events are in any way uh, related or, or just uh, uh, correlated and coincidental? Uh, so if you look at the big picture, actually rainfall overall in Texas has gone up by about 5 or 10% over the past century. So it seems to be getting wetter. Um, in terms of extreme rainfalls, we get as we get down to like very wet month or very wet day, the sort of thing that causes flooding, there the, the connection with climate change is a bit stronger. And uh, so, for example, after Harvey, there have been several studies looking at uh, historic trends in rainfall, and it seems that those super intense storms actually are producing on the order of uh, 10, 20, or even 30 percent more intense rain than they would have if they happened like 100 years ago. So uh, unfortunately, this, this wet weather that we've had that contributes to the flooding is probably being enhanced by the warmer temperatures that we've been seeing globally and the change of weather patterns that goes along with that. As you pull back, and I know you're reluctant to do this, but if what's the takeaway from, you know, fewer tornadoes, uh, an apparent reduction, or at least uh, sort of the status quo when it comes to hurricanes, and a whole lot more rain? Is there is there a way to tie it all together and give us a sense of what we're looking at for the next five or ten years, or is just no way? Well, I think uh, this conversation makes it kind of clear that you can't make blanket statements about extreme weather. Climate change doesn't make all extreme weather worse, doesn't make all extreme weather better. We get uh, uh, warmer temperatures give us more heat waves, and they give us fewer intense days of cold. So each aspect of the weather is influenced in a different way by changes in the climate. So it's, it's difficult to generalize in that regard. Um, the, the the things that... Uh, we're most confident about in terms of climate are, are rising temperatures, which have gotten above the the background variability level in Texas over the past century, so they're noticeably hotter. Rainfall, average rainfall still is quite variable, so the trend has not really come out beyond the randomness that happens from year to year or even from decade to decade. So temperature is climate, rainfall is still mostly weather. Expect the unexpected <laughs> is what it sounds like. <laughs> uh, John Nielsen Gammon is Regents Professor of Atmospheric Sciences at Texas A&M. He's also state climatologist. Professor Nielsen Gammon, thanks for spending a few minutes with us on the Texas Standard. Hey, you're welcome. My pleasure. Support. 
Support for Texas Standard comes from Texas CASA, advocating for a safe and positive future for all Texas children in the child protection system. Volunteer information at becomeacasa.org. Every child has a chance. It's you. Ever since I was probably about eight, nine years old, I knew I was always different in some way, form or fashion, you know. And it wasn't actually until I was in the military. And at the time, there was Don't Ask, Don't Tell. Ever since then, you know, I got discharged in 2012. June of 2012, I started hormone therapy. I'm Wiley Simpson, 27, San Antonio. I'm Stefan Gaith, 27, uh, in San Antonio, Texas. Um, So we met online more than a year ago. Something that had brought us together really early on was our interest in, you know, nature nature and sustainable living and living tiny. Hit it off kind of right away. (laughs) And it was like, here, be even closer. Yeah. Congratulations, you're pregnant. (laughs) Oh my gosh, you know, like, what are we going to do? We have options. There's adoption, keep it ourselves, or unfortunately have an abortion. And for me, obviously, you know, with being transitioning, being on hormones for six years, I would have to one for stop hormones for the duration of the pregnancy. And that was my main thing. I was just like, how am I going to do this when for so long uh, I've tried to get away from being anything close to being feminine or anything to do with being a female? And it was just, it was just very scary for me because I was like, this is not, this is not who I am. I never planned to get pregnant. I mean, I've always wanted to be a dad, but it was just after uh, our first OB appointment, you come to find out I was already 11 weeks pregnant. So it's, I kind of at that point I was just like, oh my god, it's got heart and it's got a, it's got legs and arms, you know. It was just um, hard for me to get the idea out of my head that, hey, this is not going to define who you are. This, is, this doesn't make you any less of a man or any less of a father that you've always wanted to be. It was just kind of much more of a, you know, mental and emotional struggle. After we found out about Rowan, like, would he fit? Would, you know, it be okay? And we started looking at this amazing archive of videos, YouTube, um, of other families, yeah, that have, you know, five kids living on a bus. And so we were like, yeah, you know, um, babies just kind of want to be close to you and want to be loved and want that attention, so... We can do that. We have that. Yeah, I mean, I don't see myself as any less of a man. And it was just an amazing experience. And I'm glad I actually got to go through, you know, to experience what women go through. It's just amazing. And looking back at it now, I was so scared of it feminizing me. And it never did, you know, so. We're really excited to actually be on the verge of this voyage of taking the bus, going on a journey, uh, and then just hiking and parking and being in spaces and taking time to live experiences and be parents. 
Wiley Simpson and Stefan Gaeth with their son Rowan. The family's planning to leave San Antonio to travel to national parks first up the West Coast by bus. 44 minutes past the hour, Texas Standard Time. Great to have you with us. We've all heard of West Nile virus, the disease spread through the bite of an infected mosquito, but it really became something all Texans started talking about in 2012. That year, the Department of State Health Services counted more than 1,800 confirmed human cases in Texas alone. 89 people died here. Many others suffered paralysis and other long-term effects. But what's happened since? Well, in our Spotlight on Health, Margaret Nicholas takes a look at how survivors of the 2012 outbreak are living with West Nile and how state officials and researchers are responding to the dangers today. West Nile virus made big headlines in Texas in 2012. But the truth is, it probably infects thousands of people here each year, even though the actual number of confirmed cases tends to be quite low. That's because an estimated 80% of those infected don't have any symptoms and never see a doctor. Others will become sick with flu-like symptoms and recover. But for a small number of people each year, West Nile causes permanent disability, paralysis, and death. In 2012, 68-year-old Chuck Yarling was an avid runner, biker, and swimmer who'd competed in more than 100 triathlons. In fact, he'd competed in one just weeks before he fainted in his apartment on an August afternoon. He awoke days later in a rehab hospital, a different man. And they explained what was going on. I could not move my legs. I was in a wheelchair. I found out later that my right ear was dead and lost hearing in my left ear. That was, being a musician all my life, that was kind of a shock. Yarling has worked hard to regain mobility and strength. He's back to biking and swimming, and even recently completed an event called an aquabike with some support. But he still has trouble balancing, and his goal to run again has remained elusive. If I don't run by the end of this year, I probably won't be able to. Six and a half years. Walter Mizell was also an avid runner before his encounter with an infected mosquito in 2012. He found out he was sick when his right leg gave out on him while traveling. Like Yarling, he had the neuroinvasive variety of West Nile, which affects the nervous system and brain. Once diagnosed, doctors told Mizell there was nothing to be done. From there on, it was just a matter of managing the pain and uh, dealing with the... Um loss of strength in, in my right side. I lost the nerves that propel the muscles in my right leg, and I had to, I had to relearn how to walk. It's meant that he too has had to give up running, though he does bike and walk. His work life also fell victim to West Nile. Mizell was a full-time attorney when he contracted the disease, but had to shut down his practice because his ability to manage stress was impaired by the virus. He says finding a support group of survivors helped him greatly in coping with the effects of the disease. So what I learned from the support group in Dallas was that it wasn't just me, that it was something that was a natural progression from that disease that made it difficult to manage stressful situations. Both men said they felt lucky to be alive, knowing that others who were infected that same summer died. 
West Nile has killed 167 people in Texas in the past decade. One of these was Central Texas teen Cody Hopkins. His grandmother, Rosalie Kibbe, told the state's Task Force on Infectious Disease Preparedness and Response, his death proves a big misconception about West Nile. I've heard people say, well, it's just an age-related disease. That's not true. Cody was 13 years old. He was healthy. He played football. He rode bulls. He was a very active, healthy, happy young man. 2018 has so far been fairly mild for West Nile in Texas, with 98 human cases reported as of last week and two fatalities. But once again, those numbers are far below the actual totals of people infected. We'll look into a few reasons why that is tomorrow on The Texas Standard. I'm Margaret Nicholas for The Texas Standard. Support for Texas Standard comes from TCU, where horned frogs strive to be ethical leaders and global citizens, like Dr. Jonathan Oliver, who's researching solutions to reduce concussion damage among athletes. TCU, lead on. You're listening to the Texas Standard. I'm David Brown. As you may have heard by now, the Trump administration is ordering hundreds of active military troops to the border in an apparent show of force against migrant caravans heading through Mexico from Central America. It's possible the president could attempt to invoke emergency powers to turn away the entire group of would-be asylum seekers and effectively shut down the border. But such promises taken together with waves of deportations, ice crackdowns, and family separations at the border remind some historians of a period when all the above, and worse, became the norm in the United States. Emilio Zamora is a professor in the history department at the University of Texas at Austin. He's the author of several books. His focus has been on the history of Mexicans in the United States. Professor Zamora, welcome to the Texas Standard. Thank you very much. You have said that, of course, incidents in history uh, bear strong echoes today. Uh, what does what does the current situation today, with with talk of caravans and deportations and shutting down the border, that sort of thing, what does it remind you of? Well, it reminds me of massive deportations that occurred in the 30s and the 1950s. Uh, the federal government took the lead in that effort. Anywhere from 500,000 to seven, 800,000 people of Mexican origin, including U.S.-born Mexicans, the children, were deported. Why? What was the why the early 1930s was? I mean, I think a lot of people didn't uh, didn't at the time didn't have any idea of just what sort of immigration enforcement policy the United States had, if there was a formal policy. There was, a, to some extent, there was a racial animus involved, but also the argument that government officials made is that resources are very limited during the economic crisis, and they should only be shared with U.S.-born people. So we're talking about the Great Depression, essentially, the start of the Great yes. Depression and the welfare programs that uh, that were launched in the early 30s. Uh, what about the Mexican government? What was their reaction when hundreds of thousands of Mexicans um, uh, or people of Mexican descent or, or heritage began streaming back across the border? Well, they were under a lot of criticism from the left and the right for not uh, speaking forcefully about the problems with Mexicans in this country. So um, they decided to set up a colonization program, which provided land and tools and uh, seeds and fertilizer to people in the northern uh, region of Mexico. They called it a colonization program. So they encouraged people to come back home. You know, this sort of reminds me of this sort of push-pull that there have been... uh 
uh, sort of waves in American history, certainly through the 20th century, in which the United States government uh, wants to bring in uh, more laborers, uh, inexpensive labor, and they often turn to Mexico. You think of the Braceros program, for example, which was started in the in the wartime era in the 1940s. Uh, and then you see uh, later in the 1950s another wave of mass deportations. Well, that, that shows a pattern of U.S. Uh, immigration policy. They, the, the government um, encourages people to come uh, when they're needed, and they in- discourage them from coming or deport them uh, during political okay, economic crisis or a, a political crisis like the one we're facing today. I think a lot of listeners have not heard of the 1930 mass deportations, uh, and, and, or 1930s mass deportations. And I'm, I'm wondering if you think about the, what happened then and you think about the, the, the patterns as you know them to be as an historian, and you overlay that over what's happening today, what do you see? Well, I, there's a saying that history rhymes in the present. Um, the decision by the federal government to, to draw people in when they're needed and to expel them uh, when they're not needed is part of the, also of the political culture. That is, uh, newspapers, uh, journalists, as well as uh, politicians of all sorts, and local government uh, administrators contributed to this uh, this uh, a- environment in which Mexicans are seen as expendable objects in the labor market. Um, so it's not just the federal government in the U.S. and in Mexico that are complicit in this. I think uh, a lot of us uh, now, as well as in the 1930s, are complicit by, um, with our silence, for example. Emilio Zamora is a professor in the history department at the University of Texas at Austin. He is the author of several books, and his focus has been on the history of Mexicans in the United States. Professor Zamora, thanks so much for taking a few minutes out to talk with us. Thank you very much. And you are listening to The Texas Standard. Social media editor Wells Dunbar is away, but in his place, it's uh, our own Michael Marks. Good to see you, Michael. Hey, good to see you, David. Quickly wanted to bring you some of the reaction we had uh, to the website Gab going offline right. this morning. Like I mentioned, social media site advertises itself as a haven for free speech, had become populated by neo-Nazis and white nationalists after it was discovered that the gunman at the Pittsburgh synagogue posted several anti-Semitic messages there. Mm-hmm. Some web hosting services declined its business, uh, leading to the site being, set, the site being shut down, right. although CEO says it's a temporary move. Nonetheless, mixed reaction to this news. Uh, this from Twitter user Matt1234 in Dallas. Mm-hmm. If you don't let people with ill-advised views speak publicly, then you are never able to moderate them and lead them into echo chamber activity where they radicalize even more deplatforming and limiting free speech uh, does the opposite of good. It encourages more violence, whereas fellow Dallas, Dallasite David Burroughs tweets at us, people posting hateful, violent messages to, messages on Gab isn't free speech. It's the equivalent of shouting fire in a crowded theater, which leads to motivating others into acting on dangerous and criminal deeds. Surely we will see more news and debate on this particular Boy, aspect of the story in the coming that. days. Mm-hmm, absolutely. Another story Texans are talking about, David, there is a whole lot of voting going on. Early voting turnout yeah. in Texas has been strong to quite strong so far. Now, what does that mean? 
I, I was going to ask you that question. <laughs> I don't think anyone knows yet. <laughs> Republicans and Democrats both say it's a positive sign for their party. So make of that what you will. Yeah, right. Over on the Texas Standard Facebook page, a little dissent over a rumor that made the rounds the end of last week. Tom Stell writes on our on our wall. What the hell does it matter when you have voting machines changing votes? He's referencing there stories of folks who meant to vote straight ticket, but then noticed a change to their ballot when reviewing their selections as typically at the top of the race. Between... This has happened to me, by the way. Oh, it has? Yeah, absolutely. Uh, well, typically, yeah, we're talking about, I'll get to that in a minute, typically you're talking about the top of the race, the Senate contest between Ted Cruz, Beto yep. O'Rourke. The Texas Secretary of State's office has looked into this. They chalk the issue up to user error. Evidently, mm-hmm. if you vote straight ticket and hit a button before the final screen pops up, that may deselect a candidate. It usually affects the Senate race since right. that's at the top of the right. ballot. Right. Whether that is indeed user error or poor design is a debate folks could have. Well, all right. There's some to that. Julie Stiles writes, they're not actually changing votes. They're just way too prone to user error when straight ticket voting, which is still a huge problem. But spread the word. Don't straight ticket vote and check your ballot before finalizing your vote. I think that's the moral of the story right. here, that's David. Check. It. Double check. Triple check, then check again. <laughs> yeah, that, well, that's how I discovered it. I mean, I was checking the ballot, and then then it's like, well, wait a minute, wait a minute, what due happens diligence. up here? Yeah, exactly. So, anyway, uh, we would love to hear your experiences. Uh, you can always tweet us at Texas Standard. You can join the conversation over on Facebook. Just look for Texas Standard. Because, you know, uh, Michael Marks here is looking for you. He's filling in for Wells Dunbar, social media editor. We're out of time for the big broadcast, but we're going to be back here tomorrow. We hope you can join us. On behalf of the entire crew, I'm David Brown, wishing you a marvelous Monday. Philanthropic support for Texas Standard comes from Casey and Scott O'Hare, the Winkler Family Foundation, Lynn Dobson and Greg Wooldridge, Adrian Killam, and the George Huntington family. R.I. Public Radio International.